0: Welcome to another episode of Axe the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford.
1: Hello, Kat. Welcome to week 600 of the Eternal E3.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's been pretty busy, but I've been mostly focused on The Last of Us Part 2, which is officially out as of this recording. And Nadia, would you believe that the internet conversation around it is as toxic as ever? I am shocked. Shocked. Well, not that shocked. (laughs) I am really annoyed and sad because we've officially hit this point, and this happens in Reddit too, Nadia, Mm -hmm. where people will just get really riled up about something, and you'll just get this giant internet echo chamber, and if there's any dissenting opinion whatsoever, people will just downvote you to oblivion, and that's what's happening on Twitter right now. Yeah, um, that exact attitude
1: is why, like, I can't visit the main Pokemon Reddit because people would, like, their whole existence, their whole personality was dumping on Sword and Shield when the whole uh, Dexit thing came out. And if anyone said anything remotely positive, they'd get voted down into Oblivion, as you said, so there's just nothing there that that's resembling a dissenting opinion.
0: Yeah, it's really boring and annoying, but it's not surprising when you have teenagers driving so much of the discourse around these games. <laughs> teenagers. <laughs> yeah, I I would like people to do better, but it is social media, so I guess I'm not surprised. But I, I do think that The Last of Us Part Two is an enjoyable and interesting game. It maybe helped that I went in without being hugely invested in the world or the characters so it didn't bug me it, some of the decisions didn't bug me as much also i enjoy seeing lesbians represented as the main characters of a major big budget video game that's pretty cool yeah jewish lesbian too is she jewish
1: yeah katie was telling me how first of all the name dina is very very common like uh... i had a lot of friends growing up named Dina. And, uh, right, like, she's Jewish. Duh, she yeah. talks about it at one point? I was gonna say, like Katie told me, there's a scene where she's talking about how her, her, basically, her ancestors survived the
0: Holocaust, so she's kind of a survivor herself. Yes. Anyway, we're not here to talk about The Last of Us Part Two. We are here to talk about RPGs, and we got a lot to cover. A bunch of RPG news came out this week. We're going to continue the console RPG quest, in which we'll be talking about The Wonder Swan and the Neo Geo Pocket. And we, of course, are going to read your letters for letter time. Okay, Nadia. Oh, yeah, and we're going to talk about the Pokemon DLC. Jeez, we have so much to talk about this week. <laughs> we got a lot to cover. We we absolutely do. Well, I look forward to a three-hour podcast, Nadia. Oh, boy. Yay. <laughs> All right. First things first, So, if you like this podcast, can I recommend that you review and rate us on iTunes? It helps the visibility of the show, and it always brightens our day. I think uh, you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. You can follow our channels, our social media channels at US GamerNet. And by the way, we're streaming on Fridays now at one p.m. Pacific, three p.m. Central, four p.m. Eastern. I, I think that I think I got that right. Something like and that. And it's hosted by Eric Van Allen, and he has been lately just been getting indie developers on who have been showing like really cool games. We also play. Big new games as they're coming out. Um, usually focusing on games that haven't been released yet so that you can kind of get an early preview. We're calling it the Untitled US Gamer Stream for now, and I, have, I fear that that name will end up sticking. <laughs> it's starting to look that way. It's been a couple of weeks now. Yeah, we're just going to have to do all the branding around it at this point. Uh, we also have a newsletter, and I wrote about this newsletter this week. The topic was, will we see the Mass Effect Trilogy coming on a Nintendo Switch because we were a couple days away from EA Play happening, and Nadia, the answer was a resounding no. We did not <laughs> see Mass Effect Trilogy. We did not. When they said, here's one more thing,
1: and I'm like, oh, here it comes, and it turned out to be like Skate. I was like, oh, well, I'm surprised,
0: but not really. I mean, plenty of people are excited for Skate 4. Even if Mass Effect Trilogy gets remastered, I'm just kind of shrugging at this point because... The games are accessible elsewhere and ultimately I'm not going to play these games so I don't really care. (laughs) I will and I'm
1: waiting for them to come on the Switch because I know, I just feel it in my bones, they're coming. And the minute I go ahead and buy them on
0: Steam, they're going to come out. I suppose that's the point of a thing like this. Like I played them when they came out so I'm kind of like, yeah, I had my Mass Effect experience. I don't really need to circle back and revisit these games that I beat quite a while ago. But Nadia... You have never played Mass Effect, so this would be a great opportunity for you and many others like you to finally play these games.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a blind spot. I know the games came to console as well at some point, but just starting off as on like a PC plus a generation where I kind of didn't really have a lot of money, so I didn't have a lot of systems, uh, it, it was definitely wound up being a big blind spot for me.
0: Yeah, and also Mass Effect Trilogy could be a really good game to play on the go, Because, I mean, just, I imagine curling up in an armchair with headphones, playing Mass Effect 2, it'd almost be like reading a good book. Yeah, there you go. That's that's what I'm into. Well, I expect Mass Effect Trilogy will happen at some point. It's a little shocking that it didn't get, it hasn't even come out yet, but that's EA just being really short-sighted in its support of the Nintendo Switch. I think that people are less interested in Mass Effect Trilogy in general and more interested... Maybe in just having Mass Effect be relevant again, because it's been a couple years since Mass Effect Andromeda. Obviously, Mass Effect Andromeda was complete bust, really mm-hmm. bad. And people want good Mass Effect back in their lives.
1: Yeah, which, of course, the, uh, well, the first two I know are counted as good Mass Effect uh, 3, I think, is kind of wishy-washy.
0: Uh, there are plenty of people who will stand for Mass Effect 3. They just don't like the ending, and I, yeah. I don't blame them. yeah. We want to talk about controversies? Oh my god, Mass Effect Three's—that <laughs> was I, one of
1: the first that like really blew up with social media. That was a demonstration of what social media can do for a controversy.
0: I am exhausted just thinking about the Mass Effect Three controversy. Me too. Oh god. I really freaking hate whenever one of these things pop up. Like people will go, "Oh, it's good for business," but the conversation just gets toxic. You just get these YouTube channels that exist solely to crank out video after video after video af- about this stuff whipping up fan sentiment. You get death threats against the developers. You get journalists getting abused. And it's just not a healthy environment to talk about video games. It's just not fun. No, it really isn't. And you really sometimes have to... S- I-, I understand we're
1: all kind of quarantined. We're all a little bit scatterbrained at this point in time. But sometimes you have to stop and say, okay, this is entertainment. We live in a world where people are dying of like viruses and, and police brutality and all of that. Like, Let's not take all our problems out on video games do better
0: internet that's all i gotta say please do better okay let's talk about the news that is happening in the rpg space the first and the most important news has to do with a game that was announced during the pokemon stream yes nadia there is a new pokemon snap coming i don't care that it's an rpg not an rpg sometimes games are good Yeah, um,
1: that was a surprise announcement. Like, that was uh, that the presentation happened really early in the morning. You guys were still asleep, probably. And we're all just kind of watching this cute little presentation about, like, Pokemon brush your teeth or whatever the app is called. And all of a sudden we see Pokemon Snap 2. And we're just like, what? Really? Like, that is one game that I thought, like, Game Freak was done with and we're never going to see again. But, nope, here we are.
0: When that happened, I asked you to write a Why Are People So Psyched About Pokemon Snap Being Announced. And do you, you want to kind of run us through that really quickly?
1: Yeah, basically, I think one of the main reasons is nostalgia is a big, big part of it. Let's not deny that. Um, Pokemon Snap kind of came out in a time when, you know, the, we knew Pokemon through their black and white sprites, static, maybe through the anime And here was an environment with Pokemon Snap where you could interact with them, albeit in a limited way, but you could see them, how they lived and how they played and and all of that. And it was actually not just a game about taking pictures. It was kind of a little bit of a puzzle game as well because it was like, okay, here's this Charmeleon. How do you make him evolve so you can turn him into a Charizard and get a picture of that? Because, of course, your goal is to ultimately get all, back then there was 151 Pokemon and get a snapshot of all of them it's just a good peaceful sort of concept that i think will actually carry over quite well into the modern age even though we have seen pokemon in 3d before by now but people are still of course crazy about pictures they're crazy about social media instagram what have you they're crazy about sharing this stuff and i think if we have like a really pretty pokemon game with like uh you, you know where you can have pokemon take do like fun crazy poses if you perform a certain task to get them to do that I think it could be like a pretty big success, and of course, uh, I find uh, the Millennials in particular are very, very into Pokemon Snap, whereas I was like, I liked it, but I was, uh, I guess a little bit too old for it by that point, so uh, it says something that the most excited people about this game were like Katie and Eric, like they were over the moon about it.
0: I'm pretty excited too. I think that Pokemon Snap, the appeal of it for a lot of people is this opportunity to interact with Pokemon, these creatures that they really like. And in a way, you can't always easily do in the video games. It's been a long and kind of slow process of Game Freak slowly but surely getting us to a point where the Pokemon are kind of pets, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think that in the world of Pokemon Snap, just being able to go through and... Find cle- see the Pokemon existing in this world and doing interesting things, and being able to find ways to interact with them just really speaks to the lizard part of our brain who uh, who want to interact with these monsters. So yeah, it reminds me a little bit of like Jurassic Park. Like I kind of wish Jurassic
1: Park was a real thing. So I really just want to drive through it and see dinosaurs. And I kind of feel the same way about Pokemon as well.
0: And it, it gets to the root of another thing is that. I think that some of the backlash against Pokemon Sword and Shield isn't just the national deck stuff. Like people were obsessed over like this one tree, right? the tree, the N64 tree. I mentioned that in my thing, yeah. And what people really want is The Witcher Three, but Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and yeah, I have to say the graphics that they showed us, even though the game's we don't know when it's coming out. I don't think it has an announced date yet, but it's definitely looking very, very pretty.
0: Would I want Assassin's Creed Valhalla, but with Pokemon? Heck yeah, I would. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs>
1: It's never going to happen.
0: It's no. just not Pokemon. But the thing is that people don't understand is that Pokemon has never really been about these massive open world experiences or whatever. It's been about social interaction. That's number one. And mm-hmm. number two is like these really deep RPG mechanics that are designed to make these creatures feel alive. And the mm-hmm. reason that so many people, including myself, got dragged into it in the first place was the amount of depth. And at a certain point, you have to make a decision. Do you want a giant Witcher 3 style open world, but with relatively shallow mechanics? Or do you want something that is richer and deeper and more interesting? There's a lot still to recommend Pokemon, even if it doesn't have the greatest graphics of all time. It's not all about graphics.
1: Yeah, um, the thing about Pokemon is people don't appreciate just how hard it is, how to make a game that deep and that, like, mechanically balanced. I mean, it says something that Temtem just fell off the earth because uh, I've heard it was a good game. I didn't play it myself. Well, it's not on console. That's part of the problem. It's <laughs> definitely part of the problem. But another part of the problem is, and I've seen this 10 billion zillion times, it turns out to be so difficult to maintain these games and keep them well balanced and keep everyone entertained that, you know, the developers eventually you know i'm not saying ten is dead of course i'm just saying that it's slowed down to a point that like it can't really afford to slow down that that much but wants to survive especially as a new property so yeah pokemon it might not be the most beautiful looking game in the world but it exists it's a game where you can take 800 monsters and, and fight them against like people from all over the world
0: i think people really just get invested in this world and i think that's a credit to Game Freak, right? Like, why do people want a game where you can visit every single region and have every single Pokemon at your disposal? Because they feel so invested in these monsters. Who they, These monsters can kind of represent your personality in a lot of ways. Uh, these monsters have followed people from game to game, so they feel like pets. So people want even deeper and more meaningful ways to express that personal connection that they feel to these pieces of data and pokemon snap 2 the excitement around that is kind of representative of that yeah definitely
1: i am curious to see what comes out of it i of course will play it
0: i will too it looks like it's going to be on rails again which i guess i'm not not surprised by i hope that the worlds are richer and more beautiful it does look pretty good in the gameplay vids i i think i mentioned that i my fantasy game was basically a pokemon safari kind of game where you're driving around in a car and finding pokemon in these beautiful locations and the way that you progress through the game is that you unlock more ph- photography tools and open up new regions et etc 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 right and then you can have a little ranch with your pokemon it's great who knows you might get that for a new pokemon snap i don't think so it looked like you're in one of those carts again yeah i guess we'll see that's fine i guess we'll see I guess while we're talking about Pokemon, I, we should probably talk about the DLC, which is now out. Uh, I have a code. I haven't re- turned it in yet because I've been a little distracted by this game called Animal Crossing, which <laughs> I'm just going to play until the end of time. Everybody else has bounced off it, but I still play it every single my day. My husband still plays it every day. Uh, I've been meaning to go back to it. I just got frustrated
1: because I got like stuck on what I want to build next, and I was like, oh, I'm not nearly as good as my husband because he's really good at dro- at making things.
0: The upshot of that is that I've kind of not been playing Pokemon, uh, and I've been wanting to get back into it, though, because several new Pokemon have become available through the Pokemon DLC, which I don't think you need the DLC to actually be able to access, which is good. Uh, but there's some weird choices in there, as I was kind of mentioning, like, hooray, I can get Klefki in <laughs> Sword and Shield now. I caught him uh, just today, actually. I'm like,
1: oh boy, Klefki. I kind of like him. He makes jingling sounds. Klefki is a (laughs) keychain. Apparently he's a really good fairy type. I I wouldn't use him. I'd never use him. But people who use him swear by him. He exists to annoy the heck out of you. He, He exists to make people say like Gen 1 was the best. What the hell is this?
0: Well, Klefki's stupid looking. Come on, it's a freaking keychain. But it takes balls to stand
1: up there and say, I'm going to make a keychain
0: Pokemon. F you. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? People are like, oh, I want cool looking Pokemon. But I think it's the weirdos that add the flavor. It really like Everyone like dumps on Klefki and Trubbish
1: and, and Vanillux, but those are the ones and no one no one like forgets them.
0: Nope. Everybody's always going to be talking about Vanilux until the end of time. Yeah.
1: Vanalux.
0: and in Pokemon Sword and Shield I hate Trubbish and the, the evolution Garbador I think it is Garbador, yeah. <laughs> I have a jacket my character is wearing a, a Garbor jacket which uh, well that they worked Pokemon Sword and Shield's uh, branding worked on me. There was one time
1: I don't know we, where we were we were at some someone's house and their kid was watching Pokemon and Trubbish came on the screen and my
0: dad which was like holy shit <laughs> he had no idea what he was looking at I mean, it's disgusting. It is. I, I, I can't stand to look at it. I don't like... I hate garbage. I hate dirty things in general. And it makes me feel gross to look at this bag Pokemon that looks like rotting coffee grounds. I don't know. It's a, it's a monument to our sins, cat. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but I can import some old favorites like Shizor and Volcarona. So I was thinking I'm going to do that and finally finish off Pokemon Sword I have not finished the original game. This is the first Pokemon that I have not finished in relatively short order. It just kind of goes to show how firmly I've bounced off this series, I guess. No, you should finish it. Um, The good thing is that you
1: don't have to finish the game to access the Isle of Armor. You can pretty much go whenever the wild area is open to you. Um, Yeah, it's, it's fun to play because I've noticed that it is very much like another wild area, except it's more interesting. There's more to see, there's more to do. Uh, The way it's designed is that there's more biomes to kind of bike through, so it doesn't feel like, even though it is about as big as the wild area in the first game, it feels a little more compact in a good way. And, of course, you go there uh, to train at a dojo, and that's where you meet uh, Cup-Fu, who's a really, really, really cute little... ...panda or teddy bear thing that knows Kung-Fu. And when you first meet him, your job is to basically take him around the island... ...and become his friend and build up his confidence because he's very shy. And uh, once you have done that, you can take him to one of the towers on the island to... uh, uh, ...kind of kick-start his evolution. And I haven't done that yet because he has to be... ...he should be is recommended somewhere around level 70. And I am nowhere near level seventy with kung fu, uh, kung 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 fu yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine.
0: I so do you like the the DLC? Is it
1: fun? I do. Uh, there is a lot to do. Um, there's a lot of stuff to find. Like, there's some trainer who accidentally lost his Alolan diglets, and you have to find if you you can find them for like uh, some kind of bonus. I forget what. I think you get an Alolan Pokemon of some kind if you find them all. Uh, there are kind of like items everywhere, scattered everywhere, Pokeballs everywhere, so there's always something to look for and find. You can upgrade the dojo uh, with Watts, so it's worth your time to collect Watts. And of course, there's the regular stuff, there's still max battles everywhere around the island, there's still um, Pokemon, of course, everywhere around the island, just ev- literally everywhere. And it's that's what's really fun is to kinda see those old favorites wandering around and you're stopping every two minutes to like catch them. It's like, Oh, there there's Sandile, I love Sandile, so I had to stop and, and catch him and name him Hamburger. Uh so yeah, I'm kinda playing a little bit scattershot right now. So there's not a lot of structure, like I said, once you're done the original dojo, but that's kinda good. You can you can wander where you will and see what there is to see, and I enjoy that about the game. Definitely a a better idea than making us go through the same game again with some, like, you know, minor improvements.
0: Agree or disagree with this comment. Isle of Armor is a viable direction for the future of Pokemon. It can be the future of Pokemon games. Uh, In terms of the DLC idea? In terms of a game that's less linear with pockets of humanity dotted about where you can kind of wander a lot more.
1: I like that idea. It's a little bit more of an open-world idea for Pokemon, and that's something that I'm pretty cool with. We've had so many years of staying on the path and going to this gym and the next gym and the other gym, and that's fine. I I like that familiarity, too, but I definitely like the idea of just kind of being in this big area, and there's players all around me, and that's actually one thing they added that I really like, is that your favorite Pokemon will follow you now. Uh, I kind of wish you could ride the Pokemon instead of your bike, but no, you still got your bike, so...
0: I mean, that's the dream, right? Is being able to ride your Pokemon wherever you want?
1: It would be so cool if everyone, and you could see everyone riding their favorite Pokemon. Uh, but God, as it is, of course, this is Game Freak, so they're online as jank as hell. So you still get that, that stuttering on the overworld, because of course it's really busy right now. Everyone's playing it. So I, I can only imagine how much trouble that would cause for <laughs> Game Freak.
0: That's the thing. You get the impression that Game Freak understands people want this open world concept, hence you have the wild areas, and they're just trying to implement it in fits and starts and it's not going extremely well so far, but maybe this is the period where the refining period and that the next generation is going to be far more interesting and deeper and well presented.
1: I do get that impression, because I really do feel like they learned some lessons, uh, maybe some of the criticism got through to them, with the Wild Area, and they really tried to structure it in a way that's a little more interesting than the original Wild Area. It doesn't feel as random as the original Wild Area, which was kind of like, you know, you'd going, you'd cross a line, and suddenly the, the weather would change. You go back over the line, and the weather would change again. That was kind of weird. You don't get that so much on the Isle of Armor, It's just, you know, you could see an island off in the distance and you can, like, ride your bike to it. And while you're doing that, a freaking Sharpedo will try to kill you. And that's actually quite terrifying. (laughs) So they do understand. They are starting to get the hang of making these open worlds. And I'm actually interested to see if um, the next uh, expansion, what is it, Crown, Crown Tundra, how much that improves upon... Isle of Armor, and how much the next generation of Pokémon improves upon Sword and Shield.
0: I think the thing that's a little disappointing is that Pokémon Sword and Shield is actually a very nice-looking game in many respects. It's just that when you get into the wild area, it's when things get really janky and really ugly. That's why people just constantly harp on that while ignoring the actually really nice areas outside of it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, you can. It's not like people
1: say, oh, Game Freak was lazy. They were not lazy. If you, even in the new expansion, you can see they put a lot of effort into making the character models. Like, uh, I don't know if you saw on my Twitter the other day, I shared a video of like when you first meet Cub Fu, and he's is really, really cute, like when he just kind of hides behind his master's legs and, and peers out at you. They've always done a really good job making the character models for Sword and Shield, and their unique animations and, and all of that is just, as you say, the wild area has those N64 trees which are still there in Isle of Armor but it's you know for for the most part the area does look quite a bit richer and quite a bit better over uh, Sword and Shield.
0: Well, I'm just going to have to get my old favorite Pokémon back into this game so that I can finally become a the champion of the Galar region and start exploring properly. Maybe if I ever manage to get away from Pokemon Sword and Shield, which I don't think is going to happen, or sorry, Animal Crossing, I also started playing Persona 4 Golden again, or Persona <laughs> did you 5. Really? No, I started oh, playing Persona, Persona 5. 5, the other one, the other one. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, so that's been taking up some of my time and energy. Persona 5 is really good, Nadia. <laughs> oh, it's it's excellent. Did you? Are you playing Royal or did you go back to your old game? I went back to my old game. That I makes just. Sense. I can't justify hitting the reset button after spending 40 hours already on this game. I want yes. to finish it before I die.
1: You were stuck on the... I can't remember where you were. You got
0: Futaba, right? No, I'm in the pyramid right now.
1: Okay. I actually really like the pyramid. I love the music there.
0: Yeah, the pyramid is pretty good. I i picked it up. I went into the pyramid and I was like, okay, what do I do again? Crap. <laughs> Because these, these dungeons are really expansive. They are. Um, the good thing about
1: the pyramid, though, is that it's kind of easy to do because it's it, it sequestered off into items. Like you have your, sorry, into chambers. Like you have your main hallway and you have like the chambers that you need to beat off to each side. And every time you beat a chamber, it opens up another door in the main hallway. So if you just go to the last chamber you were in and you just finish that, you should be able to open up the next part and the next part and the next part.
0: I didn't realize that I had managed to beat a boss and be able to proceed into a new area. So I was going through an area that I had already finished feeling really disoriented. And that's <laughs> never a great feeling to have when you're in a dungeon.
1: No, it's it's definitely the worst.
0: I was also reminded of how pretty Persona 5 is. That is a very pretty game. It is a gorgeous
1: game. Like It will it will hold up for generations to come, I think.
0: And I really enjoyed listening to the music. So yeah, Persona 4 Golan coming out on Steam was what kind of motivated me to pick up Persona 5 again. But of course, I haven't played it all week because between The Last of Us 2 and just more Animal Crossing, I've managed to keep putting it aside. So we'll see if I manage to make some time over the weekend. To it's pick very it up again. easy to
1: get stuck on one game,
0: isn't it? It sure is. I think I have like 400 hours in Animal Crossing at this point. So Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's not cool. It's terrifying, <laughs> actually. I think it's impressive. Okay, so let's talk about some of the additional news that happened before we head on to our console RPG quest. I suppose that we might have wanted to top line this, but this is the kind of podcast where we talk about Pokemon before we talk about Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk <laughs> has been delayed until November from yes. September. Uh, pretty big news. Maybe not that unexpected, given reports of how CD Projekt is in some ways. Struggle to optimize it for current-gen consoles, etc. Sounds like a humongous game, so they probably have a lot of work to do, and the pandemic certainly hasn't been helping. Any thoughts on Cyberpunk being delayed, Nadia? Is this, like, really bad? Do you care? <laughs> um, the only thing that causes
1: me to worry, if there is any reason to worry, is it's creeping awfully closer to the launch of the next generation of systems, which I still think is not going to happen with as you say, COVID nineteen. So it might actually be to C D Project Res benefit when people try to secure a PS five and no way in hell are they gonna get one. So they're like, okay, well I guess I'll just buy Cyberpunk and like sulk in the on my PS four or something. So that might actually come out to their benefit now that I think about it.
0: Yeah, I think that it's gonna roughly coincide with the launch of new consoles. And I don't think that it's coming out at the same time as new consoles. It's going to be coming out a little bit later. So.
1: It's de- yeah, okay, so is it around the time when, like, you say you go to the store, if, if GameStop still exists by that point, you say, I would like this, I'd like a PS5, and they laugh you out of the store. So you're like, well, I'm here, I may as well pick up Cyberpunk.
0: The usual dynamic is people, when the new generation of consoles come out, there's still a giant install base from the previous generation. Exactly. I think a good case in point was... When Titanfall came out on the Xbox One, the Xbox three sixty version that EA forced respawn to make, uh, easily outsold the Xbox One version. Oh yeah. Yeah. So in, in yeah. fairness though, the Xbox One kinda sucks, so <laughs> <laughs> sorry any Xbox the... One fans who are I was listening gonna to say, this. Cat with the spicy take,
1: but I don't think there's too many Xbox One fans listening. Um, if you are, shout out because I, I kinda like the Xbox One. I think it's it tries its best. My husband's a big fan.
0: When we get to the when we get to the console RPG quest for the Xbox one, I think I can put out some more nuanced thoughts. but in, in right now I'm just gonna launch ad hominem attacks against <laughs> Microsoft's console. let's let's be honest. the Xbox one has a lot of issues, it but does. anyway, I expect that cyberpunk is gonna sell very well on the PS4 because everybody's gonna be excited about that one. As for yeah. me, I am going to be building a new computer in relatively short order with all of the fanciest bills and whistles. And it'll probably be happening in September when the new graphics cards come out. And you know why I'm building a new computer, Nadia? Cyberpunk? No! (laughs) I'm building a new computer because of Star Wars Squadrons, which Uh. is a game I've been waiting for to play for 25 years. I'm getting the headset, Nadia. I'm flying my X-Wing. You're never going to see me again. (laughs) What if the game sucks? What are you going to do then? Don't say things like that, <laughs> not am, am I fired now? <laughs> I just know that EA is just don't screw this up, EA. Just don't screw it up. I do have to say it looks pretty amazing. I if EA if EA screws this up, I'm gonna personally drive to Redwood City and I'm gonna have very strong words <laughs> with Andrew Wilson very strong words. You're going to knock on the door. Excuse me. May I talk to Andrew? Excuse Wilson? me. I'm very disappointed in Star Wars squadrons. How can you screw this up?
1: It does look pretty cool. Um all shout outs to the people like you who build their own computers. The very idea just scares the crap out of me.
0: Well, by building my own computer, I'm going to meet I'm going to rope my housemate into helping me build it. <laughs>
1: okay, yeah, yeah. That's that's
0: fair enough. That's the only way I could I could build my own computer if I got someone to help me with it. I built my last one, the one that I have right now, and it's kind of a fraught process filled with cooling gel and making sure that sparks don't pop up from your carpet. It's a little That's, scary. that's
1: kind of the thing. Every time I'm kind of sitting on, on someone digitally who's building their own computer, there's always cursing, swearing, screens full of text about like how this doesn't work and that doesn't work and, bah,
0: Windows and the rest of it. Final thought on Cyberpunk. I wanted it to come out in May so that I could spend all summer playing it. As it is now, it's going to be my holiday game. It's going to come out. I'm going to play it in December and into the new year. And that's just kind of... It fits rather perfectly, I think, into my personal schedule. So I am actually kind of glad that it's getting delayed till November. Instead of coming out in September, right in the teeth of the sports schedule and various other games happening and me being extremely busy... It will be a more of a chill time for me to really kind of gorge on this gigantic RPG.
1: Yeah. I always gotta like give all props to those holiday games. Last year my holiday game was Red Red Redemption 2, and it was perfect for the time.
0: Okay, Nadia, do we have anything else we want to talk about at EA Play? I mean it was kind of a Yeah. It was kind of a, mm, kind of a <laughs> meh uh, presentation. We got a very quick glimpse of Stuff that's happening in next-gen. It wasn't much more than very basic teasers. We got a glimpse of what might be Dragon Age 4, I guess.
1: Yeah, there was like a teaser, like art or, or something. Just like, hey, don't forget about this. We are working on this. Please don't give up on us. No Mass Effect trilogy. Sad
0: Nelson laugh. <laughs> yeah, I added that to the uh, the notes. <laughs> Anthem A Realm Reborn was MIA, but that's fine with me. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we take RPGs very seriously here folks i wouldn't mind kotor too but i think it's going to be a bit before we see that one and anyway mm-hmm. star wars squadrons games of the game of the generation
1: there you go a plus plus plus
0: the game of the year we have decided Ugh, that trailer was so good nadia i that need this awesome game trailer. to be good i need this game to be good <laughs> it, will... it will be good it will be great it'll be the game of the decade I need this I need it to make all this horror worth it. <laughs> <laughs> It'll redeem everything terrible about
1: 2020. Okay.
0: And on that note, let's continue on to our console RPG quest. Don't go away. So, in the process of putting together this console RPG Quest, we intended to hit every console and handheld on a kind of a chronological order. And we've kind of messed that up because yes. we did the GameCube and the PlayStation 2 before several of these <laughs> handhelds came around. And we forgot about I- the 90s. Yeah, we're kind of circling back, we did the GBA last time, and now it's time to talk about a much more obscure, a pair of much more obscure handhelds, the second wave, I want to say, of the kind of competition for the Game Boy. So the original Game Boy squared off against Atari Lynx and Game Gear and vanquished all comers, right? Uh, yes. We got we got some decent RPGs or we got some decent RPGs out of it, and then we have the Wonder Swan. Which Nadia, do you have any? Have you ever picked up a Wonder Swan? Have you ever seen one of these things? I have not. Um, again, if you want to know all about the Wonder
1: Swan or anything obscure and handheld, Jeremy Parrish is your source. But I personally never picked up a Wonder Swan because it never really left Japan, so that doesn't
0: help. No, it being import only definitely was a hindrance. And obviously, because it was import only, so many Americans never even heard of it. I think the first time I ever heard of the Wonder Swan was maybe in 2006, watching wow. Gundam Seed for the first time. And one of the characters is playing a Wonder Swan, <laughs> imagining a world in which the Wonder Swan still exists years and years later. Aww. That's so sweet. I mean,
1: The Wonder Swan was made by Bandai, so a lot of the games we're going to go over are licensed,
0: like properties from Bandai, so don't be surprised. All right, let's talk a little bit about The Wonder Swan. It all began with Nintendo, as with so many other things, and maybe with some sadness, because Gunpei Yokoi, a long standing, one of the most important Nintendo employees of all time, the father of the Game Boy, and so many other amazing games he got driven out of nintendo more or less because of the virtual boy the disaster of the virtual boy
1: i am not sure what the story is there because i've heard different accounts uh Mm -hmm. like of course japanese corporate culture is very uh silently cutthroat in a way where that yeah i think you're right in that maybe he was driven out but not like pack up your bags and leave of course just like this is you know i've This was my failure, even though the Virtual Boy's failure wasn't really his fault. I will fall on the sword and take it. So, yeah, um, I've heard differing things about whether or not Gunpei Yokoi was still in good standing with Nintendo or not.
0: Uh, Well, my, I mean, there were rumors, for example, that he was shunned to the point where Nintendo basically humiliated him into having to personally give demos for the Virtual Boy, which is Uh, a great way of... Which is a great way of saying you're so low on the totem pole now that you have to interact with the press. <laughs> fans. Not the press. Not the we press. Eat Whatever happened, Gumbei Koi left Nintendo and went over to Bandai. Bandai Namco is one of the largest companies in Japan. I mean, they're mm-hmm. kind of ubiquitous. We know them for their video games, but I mean, they are everywhere. They. Have licensing rights to so many anime shows in Japan. They have a gigantic toy business. Uh, They are responsible for stuff like Gundam. Let's just say that Bandai Namco they they're ubiquitous. So if anybody was going to challenge Nintendo, you know, Bandai Namco wasn't a bad shout. Yeah, they they were a good candidate. Absolutely. Yeah, because they could immediately throw a ton of their anime licensed games right onto the wonder swan right from the jump and in case you're scoffing at that just remember that the game boy and the game boy advanced in a lot of ways was fueled by licensed titles by Mm -hmm. nickelodeon thq that kind of thing oh absolutely but
1: yeah um if you look at the Roster of games for Bandai Namco, which of course Bandai was responsible for Power Rangers or slash the Sentai's based on Power. That Power Rangers is based on, so you had that as well. I'm pretty sure they do all the Sentai in Japan, which is not a small <laughs> industry at all. But um, you're looking at a, a time when it was right before the Game Boy Advance came out. The Wonder Swan first came out as kind of a. Yes, it was black and white, but had more shades of gray than the Game Boy, if that's a, a, a great thing, I suppose it is. Uh, definitely had a sharper screen, had more shades of gray. It only required one AA battery, and apparently that could last up to 40 hours. So that's not, you know, in, in an era where you still didn't have uh, lithium-ion rechargeable batteries, that's not small potatoes. That's pretty cool. And it had that weird D-pad, like, kind of up on the, uh, up in the upper right-hand corner, which made it possible to play the game, to play the console in, like, uh, landscape or portrait mode, which is a nice little innovation.
0: Yes, our friend Jeremy Parrish created a thing for, I think, fandom, where or fan game or whatever, where you can turn the switch into, what was it, portrait mode? Yes, um, the, uh, the flip grip. Yeah, the flip grip, and you can play arcade games like Punch-Out and that kind of thing and shoot them ups in the way that they were meant to be played. Well, the Swan kind of got there first, right? It was really great <laughs> for playing being able to play these vertical shmups. So that was a clever idea. But maybe more than that, Gunpei Yokoi kind of made his name by being a very versatile engineer and being able to find these parts, uh, salvage these parts uh, that kind of are... He made a name for himself being able to use cheap parts to make very successful products that could be sold at a low price. And the Game & Watch was something that he created... The Game Boy, I already mentioned, like the Game Boy, wasn't anywhere near as powerful as the Game Gear, but it got the job done. It could be sold at a re- reasonably cheap price, and it was very successful. And you could mass produce them without too much trouble. And he took that approach to the Wonder Swan, and the Wonder Swan didn't do that great. I, I
1: think it had
0: it, it had its
1: niche. So it definitely had its audience. I think it, you're looking at like eight percent of the market share, which is not great, um, and I think that 8% only counts for when the color came out. The WonderSwan color came out in 2000, December 2000. Game Boy Advance came out in March 2001,
0: and that's all she wrote, really. Why do you think the WonderSwan did not catch on right away? Um, I think you h-
1: kind of had something going there when you said Gunpei Yokoi definitely used like cheaper parts to, for the most part, to the great benefit of the companies she was working for. In the case of the Wonder Swan, Black and White, maybe it still looked a little bit too primitive for the time, even though it was actually very e- economical, it ran on one battery, like it was, you know, Gunpei Yokoi engineering all over the place. But, yeah, um, I guess that monochrome uh, screen didn't catch people, especially when I think the Game Boy Color was out by that time. And Game Boy Color, I still think it's a very underrated system. I think the games on it look really good, it has some great RPGs, which would... It- talk about those sometime. I can't remember if we did or not. Yeah, I think that they also gave up on it quite quickly because again the color came out like a year later and there were some- most of the expertise we're going to be talking about today were, you know, at least compatible with the color if not designed for the color. So I think that maybe it was just a little bit too primitive for its time. And Of course Nintendo's stranglehold on portables is not something to be scoffed at and by that point we were looking at um, pokemon gold and silver were if not
0: out then coming out and that's that's a hard thing to compete against the problem ultimately was twofold one it was black and white and that just was not an easy sell in 1999 no. i mean we had the game boy color come out in 1999 i bought a game boy color people needed people wanted color at this point and yeah, they were ready <laughs> so that's one so like you just can't sell a black and white console in 1990 when a bla- when a color version is already out. Number two, Pokemon. It's just yes. a juggernaut. It owned everything. If you didn't have Pokemon, you lost. Full stop. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That's a good way
1: of putting it. You didn't have Pokemon, you lost. And like I said, gold and Silver were looking quite good. Um, I don't think they were designed for the Game Boy Color, but definitely did take advantage of it to uh, quite an interesting degree. So, yeah, I- I'm sure the Wonder Swan, you know, just tried
0: to make itself known, but it wouldn't have been easy in that environment. We'll circle back. I'm I'm sure we'll revisit this theme again when we get to talking about the PSP, where Pokemon... I always believed that Nintendo would win in any handheld matchup, because Nintendo had Pokemon, and that was just the end of it. (laughs) You're not wrong. Pokemon is like the killer app, absolutely. And even when Pokemon was at somewhat low ebb with the GBA, it was still... A, a persistent presence. It was always around. You just would oh, not go away.
1: No, like, Pokemon has always been kind of a juggernaut. As I say, it calmed down a little bit at some point, but it doesn't take much for it to make Pokemania
0: flare up again. Eventually, the Swan Color did come out in 2000, as you already mentioned. A rather beautiful screen. looks very nice. It was. It was a, nice, game it was was a was nice, nice little console. Just It should have been the
1: console that came out in 1999. That's it. I think that they would have had a better chance if they had actually released that in 1999, especially since... If you look at the list of the games here, this was a time I think when Square and Nintendo still weren't exactly extremely friendly with each other, so Bandai Wonderswan got a whole bunch of great Final Fantasy games, like remakes of the the older games, and some of those did make it to the Game Boy Advance eventually, but uh, there are some exclusives that never made it to the Game Boy Advance, like I was surprised to find out that Final Fantasy Legend uh, which, of course, was a saga game in Japan, that got like a really nice color remake. And there's a fan patch out there, and I might actually have to check it out because, uh, yeah, I-, I liked Final Fantasy Legend when I was younger. And um, I-, I had no idea that it got a remake on the Wonder Swan, so I'm a little bit jealous of that.
0: I lied, Nadia. Did you? The first time I ever heard of the Wonder Swan was when I started hearing about portable versions of Final Fantasy. Ah, Wonder that'll Swan. do it.
1: Yeah, because I I remember thinking about it, I was hearing about and not just portable versions of Final Fantasy, but portable versions of uh, Mega Man, Rockman, Forte, which apparently was really, really terrible on the Wonderswan.
0: As soon as I heard that I could play Final Fantasy 4 portably, I, I just needed it. I needed this thing, because... <laughs> I don't blame you. This was before Final Fantasy 4 was ubiquitous on every freaking console. And not only that, it had better graphics, too. Like, they actually improved the character models and such. It was... Really impressive what Square managed to do to yeah. kind of wring the maximum amount of power out of uh, the Wonderswan versions of these games.
1: Yeah, they do look quite a bit better. The uh, sprites have been cleaned up. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a very good port. I love Final Fantasy IV Advance as we know it.
0: Yeah, but Final Fantasy IV Advance has some notable bugs as one of the problems. I oh, yeah. I think that we probably already discussed <laughs> this.
1: Yeah, there were some there were some bad bugs in there, but they
0: were I, I made them work to my advantage because I was very good that way. And that kind of ended up being the legacy of the WonderSwan. I think, at least in the West, was that people knew it for playing host to some of the earliest portable versions of these popular Square Enix RPGs. That would, at a certain point, become ubiquitous. It's like, hooray, Final Fantasy and Final Fantasy Two and Final Fantasy Four and Legend. They're all on the WonderSwan now, and you can play them portably but not in English yeah, there was actually supposed
1: to be a port of Final Fantasy 3 as well that was cancelled and that I find interesting because Final Fantasy 3 uh is still a game that's not very easily accessible here we have the 3 d version but as for like a sprite based version that's based more on the NES game, you just won't find it I hope that changes someday me too like I like Final Fantasy three like I played it on the game Boy, uh sorry the DS and it was fine but I, I kind of want to go back to this, try it again with, like, sprite-based graphics. See like the
0: cloud of darkness and all that with sprites. One game that maybe you didn't mention, Nadia, is that Front Mission got ported and kind of remade for the Wonderswan. And it's a rather nice-looking isometric tactical RPG with giant robots. Yeah, and that sounds up your alley. <laughs> consistently ends up on best-of lists for the Wonderswan. so. Oh. And I, I feel like Wonder, Front Mission is one of those games that kind of died out in the mid-2000s. And yeah. maybe it doesn't get enough love from uh, tactics fans or RPG fans. There are plenty of people who are like, ah, oh, Front Mission. I mean, <laughs> the sheer customization that it could offer, the rather lovely graphics, the real politique of the of the story. It reminds me a little bit of Mech Warrior, but with more of a Japanese slant. And it's mm-hmm. a pity that Front Mission hasn't had a modern take these days.
1: It is a little bit too bad. I'm not into mechs, but I remember being very impressed with Front Mission. Like, I would look at screenshots and stuff of the, of like, Japanese previews in, in magazines and be like, wow,
0: I would actually play that if that was here.
1: And, of course, it never came over.
0: Of course, it wouldn't be a Bandai Namco machine if it didn't have Super Robot Wars. And oh, yeah. <laughs> plenty of those. Uh, when i when i was researching and got to like the gundam and the super robot wars i said this section is for (laughs) cat i think probably one of the most notable games from the super robot wars series to be released on the wonder swan was super robot wars compact compact 2 compact 2 in particular i believe represented the initial appearances of marshall successor nadesco and g gundam g gundam in particular would be a staple Of the series, because if you're not familiar with G Gundam, that's the one that's like the Kung Fu Gundams. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, is that the one with the Lumberjack
0: that's Canada or whatever? Yes, and Tequila Gundam? Tequila, yeah, Tequila Gundam. Infamous Tequila Tequila Gundam. And you have uh, characters shouting their attacks and everything. It's completely ridiculous (laughs) and a lot of. Dragon Ball. It's completely ridiculous and a lot of fun to have in a a Super Robot Wars game. Uh, They. The Super Robot Wars Compact 2 was so big, they actually split it into three parts, Nadia, and released Ow. them in multiple parts for like $30 or $40 each. It, these Jeez. games were not cheap. Yeah. Wow, no kidding. This was an early example of Bandai Namco price gouging. They would later do this with the Super Robot Wars Z games, where they managed to split a trilogy into two parts multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> they, they turned the final two entries into four parts instead of two. Oh, it's like things to do with movies hunger games there was, part one and two there was a certain point where it just got like i can't do this i i don't care i got to the final <laughs> the final super robot Wars z and i was like it's too much i'm ready to be done i've used these units for hundreds of tens of hours i'm ready to be finished but mm-hmm. eventually super robot wars compact 2 would be combined into super robot wars impact for the playstation 2 and maybe that's the one that you want to play you don't necessarily have to play the Wonderswan version last thing uh, Super Robot Wars Compact kind of hard kind of known for a hard game and, and did not have original generation units obviously it also had a bunch of Gundam games on it uh, it had the SD Gundam G generation games though it had a different name forgive me if I don't have that in my notes at the moment uh, the SD Gundam G generation games I like them because it has a gotta catch them all kind of Aspect of mm-hmm. collecting all of the units, and then you go through combined storylines from multiple different shows. So, yes, yeah. suffice it to say, Gundam everywhere, all of the Gundam. <laughs> <laughs> there was definitely a
1: uh, gotta catch them all theme in some RPGs back then. One thing I did notice uh, as well in a lot of the RPGs listed here is that they were tactical RPGs. And I think we talked about this in the Game Boy uh, Advance Console Quest Is just how well suited, portable. Was for tactical RPGs, so that was definitely the case with the the Wonder Swan. and of course the uh, I think the Neo Geo Pocket had its share of tactical RPGs as well.
0: Bandai Namco has some of the most storied tactical RPGs at its at its disposal, most notably Super Robot Wars. So it has even more impetus to put that onto WonderSwan. and then you have the the Front Mission port, and you have this game called Blue Blue Wing Blitz, which Blue I Wing think Blitz, is kind of yes. interesting. Yeah, tell me more about that.
1: From what I can tell, it's another square RPG, uh, where it is a tactical RPG where you are defending floating islands from expansionist empire, and it, you know, it doesn't really play quite like Bahamut Lagoon where you have your dragons, but you do have your planes, and I believe you have to like, find fuel and stuff like that to stay aloft. It looked pretty interesting, and I'm actually uh, a little surprised and disappointed that we didn't see it on any other system.
0: When I look at the list of games that are on the Wonderswan... Well, first of all, I think the Wonderswan Color only had about 80 games. So, it was a small library for the Color in particular. It didn't sell well. Yeah, like, the Color ultimately was able to get 8% of the the handheld market, but it was a niche console at best and never came out west. And it just doesn't... It has a lot of ports and a lot of licensed games, but it doesn't really have any... Legacy of its own. No, it doesn't.
1: Even the Final Fantasy games we've talked about; uh, those all came out to Game Boy Advance. Uh, I did notice it's very interesting that we have an Arc the Lad game, a tactical RPG spin-off. spinoff, uh, and that's you're not, of course, Arc the Lad is a Sony property, and that's very interesting to see on a handheld system because you're you're not going to see, uh, of course, a Sony property on a, a Nintendo handheld, and of course, this was before Sony had the the PSP or the PSV or any of their own. Uh, platform to develop for
0: that is pretty interesting isn't it i hadn't really thought about the sony connection and this was when sony was firmly into the console business at this point yeah suffice it to say not a lot of nostalgia i don't think for the wonder swan at least not in the west Uh, maybe there's maybe there's more nostalgia for the neo geo pocket which like the wonder swan was released roughly around 1998-99 also a black-and-white handheld when it was released, did not do very well, and as far as I can tell, not many RPGs.
1: No, uh, not many games in general. Neo Geo Pocket, for one thing, I have one of those. Someone from the Talking Time forums gifted me it uh, as like a Christmas gift, so that was a really interesting gift to get. What was it? Oh, okay, first of all, what's it like playing one of those things, and what games did you get for it? I can't remember what games I got because I put it away and I have to like take it out and take a good look at it again. But um, it was, it felt a little cheap to be honest with you. It feels a little bit like it's a step up from one of those tiger handhelds. But you're definitely not looking at anything as sophisticated as even the Game Boy Color. Like it was just, even the WonderSwan has a certain elegance to it. But Neo Geo Pocket just feels kind of cheap. And if you look at a lot of the games that it, it produced... They, they're they not much better than regular Game Boy graphics. Uh, yeah, it's just not the most beautiful system in existence.
0: Maybe the most notable one is a game called Biomotor Unitron, which is, yeah, I guess, a dungeon crawler where you control a robot called Unitron.
1: Yeah, that's a game where um, I believe you have a robot and you're you know you're in an arena and you fight, of course, and you build up yourself and you you you, you know buy parts for your robot and the idea is to become like the king of the arena. So it's apparently obviously very simple, but um, it has its fans and it does sound kind of interesting and definitely more interesting than a lot of the RPGs that came out.
0: Once the SNK Neo Geo Pocket Color came out, it was kind of like the WonderSwan Color where. It actually had some really nice graphics. And you look at a game like, say, Evolution or Biomotor Unitron. And I really like the art that takes place between the actual missions. The actual gameplay doesn't look amazing. Yeah, yeah, I will say that. Um, I did
1: mention that graphics are kind of ugly. But you do get some really interesting cinema scenes. And these games that you will get on the Neo Geo Pocket rely almost on those, like, kind of very simple top-down action sequences threaded around these, you know, scenes where you're talking to people head on and seeing, like, you know, anime portraits, 16-bit style.
0: There's a Sonic game for the pocket, Neo Geo (laughs) Pocket Color, and it's surprisingly good looking. I am not surprised that there...
1: There's a Sonic game for a freaking everything. That's, like, gotta be the most ported game in existence.
0: It's a little sad, though, seeing games like The Last Blade and Metal Slug get ported onto this thing in, like, severely diminished... Forms where it's like, oh yeah, no. I mean, I get that they did their absolute best to try and make these yeah. games look good, but not great.
1: I haven't seen what it looks like to have Metal Slug on that, but Metal Slug's whole thing is how gorgeous those graphics are. That just sounds sad.
0: I feel like both WonderSwan and the Neo Geo Pocket were kind of defined more by shoot 'em ups. And platformers, and especially cart-like puzzle games. People remember the Neo Geo Pocket Color for games like Magical Drop C- Pocket and Capcom vs. SNK Card Fighters Clash, and things like that. Right? Yeah. Not RPGs necessarily. <laughs> no, definitely RPGs. Like you're looking at a handful of them.
1: Uh, I will say though, the WonderSwan has this really interesting Neo Genesis Evangelion game where. It's, it is an RPG, it has RPG elements, but the, it revolves around raising, like, an embryonic atom in, like, a Tamagotchi, and that just sounds horrifying. Why would you want to do that, I ask uh, you, so you they can destroy the world? <laughs> if you have a Wonder Swan, you may as well.
0: You're not playing Pokemon. Why did all the Evangelion games end up freaking weird? I guess yeah, Evangelion. weird, so it's not surprising. No, pretty uh, Par for the course,
1: par for the course.
0: You're either seducing Asuka uh, through Mahjong, or you're apparently raising <laughs> an embryonic uh, atom through uh, through a Tamagotchi game. Just freaking give me an RPG with Neo Ge- Neon Genesis Evangelion. Jeez, it is kind of funny when you think about it. How many RPGs just take straight
1: riffs from you know Neon Genesis Evangelion? We don't really have an Evangelion RPG, do we? Other than this weird Not Tamagotchi thing. There you go. Yeah,
0: you would think that the world of Evangelion would be a really interesting place to set an RPG.
1: Yeah, like, uh, I've, I've seen people go back to Final Fantasy VII after not playing it for a long time, and they were watching Evangelion
0: on Netflix when it came out, and they're like, wow, I get it now. <laughs> I guess the best Evangelion RPG ever made was Super Robot Wars, which, in which Evangelion go. ended up guest starring as like one of many characters rather than just getting it all to itself. Yeah, but similarly, when I look at the Wonder Swan, its best games are games like Judgment Silver Sword, and Mr. Driller, you know. Mr. So, Driller's a good one, yeah. Yeah, so fun little handheld pocket arcade kind of machines. Kind of like playing my PC engine. Like when I turn on my TurboGrafx-16 Mini, I'm not playing the RPGs on that thing. I'm playing Gradius. <laughs> of course you are, yeah. Like, you
1: know, all respect to ease but uh, I would not go back to those original Ease games. I
0: have tried. Yeah, like some, some consoles I I think of like RPGs define this system or they have like that particular killer app and neither of these handhelds have that. That's fine. Like it harkens back to a different era for video games. One that I miss a lot and have a ton of nostalgia for. And if anything, I really enjoy going back to arcade experiences in particular, almost more than your classic like NES or SNES console or uh, experiences, I would love to own a Neo Geo Pocket color in particular. Maybe you should send me yours, Nadia. <laughs> it's not a color. It's like a, the black and white one. As your boss, I order you. <laughs> <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> no. I have it packed in like a, 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 a vault Tech lunchbox. I have it packed in that. So yeah, one of the reasons that we didn't really get to the Neo Geo Pocket or the WonderSwan is that in a lot of ways they're just kind of a footnote. The Wonder Swan definitely has more of a legacy than the Neo Geo Pocket, but both are incredibly overshadowed by the uh, well by the Game Boy Advance and subsequently by the Sony games. um they're an interesting kind of thing to talk about. Like, oh yeah, did you know Bandai Namco made a handheld at one point, it came out in Japan only, it had some licensed games, it passed into history. But as for the RPG, its RPG legacy I would say is kinda nil. Yeah, it's it's close to nil. Okay, let's continue on to the track of the week.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, uh, Nadia, as always, we're going to do our Track of the Week, the segment in which we revisit a track from a classic RPG, because music defines so much of what can make a great RPG. It defines the world, it defines the big story beats and everything. And this week, we are not doing a JRPG. See if you recognize the music from this game. That's right, this week we are doing Mass Effect 2 in honor of the Mass Effect Trilogy, which did not get announced. Womp womp. Womp womp. Ha ha. Nadia, did you listen to this music? And if you did, what did you think of it? Well, first of all, even though I haven't played Mass Effect, like, I've heard
1: a lot of its music, and I've always liked it. Like It's always the, the, it's always very calming, but still in a way that drives you forward. Like I have mentioned before that I have kind of a weakness for acoustic guitars, especially steel strings, and... Definitely a lot of that going on uh, in uh, The Elusive Man. Now, I don't really get the context of the song, but when I looked at the YouTube comments, someone said that their dog listened to it and became the elusive dog. So (laughs) I'm sure it belongs to a very important character.
0: I like The Elusive Man because he's basically evil President Bartlett. (laughs) Ah, that's a good way of describing it then. Because he's played by Martin Sheen. Yeah, a
1: lot of people were saying in the comments that Martin Sheen's best role.
0: Yeah, he's the mysterious head of Cerberus, who you mostly see in Shadow, who uh, brings, who recruits Shepard to work for his shadowy organization. So, yeah, and that's what you do through most of Mass Effect 2. And his music kind of reflects that, I guess. Uh, it has a lot of deep synth bass that's subtle, mm-hmm. but punctuates the, the big moments well with Mass Effect. And... Uh, yeah, like I think the music for the elusive man really captures the kind of the mysterious and sinister feel of the character. You already mentioned the steel string guitar, but there's a, a strum that adds just a little bit extra to the song uh that I don't know, what's the emotion that I'm looking for? Uh it makes you're... it sound like impactful or dangerous or something like that.
1: Yeah, like I think you had it before when you said when you said sinister. Because mm-hmm. below that kind of steel string strumming—that's a nice alliteration for you there—there there is that more darker, sinister undertone. That you know, even though it is calming, I found it quite calming. Uh, is obviously not meant to relax you.
0: So it was credited to Jack Wall, who was actually one of four composers on Mass Effect Two. He's worked on many games. He works in a variety of styles, including, quote, tribal percussion and heavy metal meets orchestra, which I found pretty interesting. <laughs> I like that. So he's obviously quite versatile in what he does. Uh, Wall has said that Mist and Mass Effect soundtracks are his favorites and that he, has, uh, that he has created and that he's primarily interested in scoring games that are interesting and that he mm-hmm. wants to create something original. He especially likes working with a multitude of people because he feels like different musical Uh, voices and styles will push one another and create improvements and certainly the mass effect soundtrack is one of the best uh, of that generation it's subtle but i think really memorable and hits at those kind of classic sci-fi beats when you're when you're playing that you think classic 80s sci-fi but it it the the soundtrack does have more range than it initially seems um there are some songs that kind of have more of a golden age of sci-fi feel to it um Mm -hmm. yeah it's a nice it's a nice soundtrack and the elusive man is one of my absolute favorites and maybe if it ever comes out on the nintendo switch nadia you can hear it for yourself
1: yes i would very much like to like i said all the mass effect music that i do know is is all very good good stuff to like
0: kind of read to and write to I especially like the music that always plays at the very beginning of every Mass Effect game when it's telling you that it's Mass Effect. <laughs> it's like, yes, yes. You are playing Mass Effect. Mass Effect. <laughs> okay, Nadia, it's letter time.
1: Letter time.
0: Last week we talked about, uh, well, we had not E3 reactions. We were reacting to the PS5 and we talked about several other things. And, uh, well, this question immediately jumped out at me. It was from FTL Mantis. And they asked, so uh, what have we actually gotten from the fancy specs of this console generation that makes people excited for fancier specs next gen? What games that came out this gen are so different from what came out before that they couldn't run an older hardware with only cosmetic sacrifices? As far as I can tell, we've only made retrograde process in terms of interesting and varied gameplay systems. Why do people care? Nadia?
1: That's a good question. Why do people care? Shoot, um, maybe
0: maybe he's asking, or maybe they are asking the wrong person.
1: It's just, uh, to me, it, it's just like about the games. I Mike is the one who sits by and is like, wow, tech specs. I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Triangles, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, the demo they had for PS5 looked really nice. and But I, you're right, I can't exactly point to it and say, this is so much better than the PS4 or even like the Xbox One or the Xbox One X or what have you. So I think it's just gonna come down to the, the the games and what's available, because the days of the the huge leaps in, in console power are so dead and gone. I will say, though, the one thing that I think the new generation will bring that's gonna be a huge advantage is faster loading times, because oh god, I am so sick of loading times.
0: I think that we have entered the age of refinement rather than revolution. Yeah. In terms it. of gameplay systems, people have kind of sussed out in a lot of respects a lot of the ways that you can play games so it's a lot harder to have kind of crazy creativity a, a game like death stranding for example very creative very interesting game that try to mess around and play with gameplay systems i think that where the real innovation is usually happening is in things like arg or vr that kind of thing Indies, yes. indie games in particular. I mean, Pokemon Go was one of the most innovative games that I've played. And obviously you don't need high-powered high-powered systems to be able to enjoy that. But I, I think that like the really big leaps forward are happening in those areas. And then maybe big-time uh, console RPGs are adopting them. I think it's notable that Dark Souls came out in the last generation. But it was this generation where games finally started to really adopt a lot of its conceits.
1: Yeah, so what you're saying is basically the new generation is giving developers just a lot more room to experiment, if nothing else.
0: Oh, no, I don't think that at all. I think they're just refining. (laughs) They're refining what's already come before and doing it in ways that are really well executed. Mm -hmm. I think a a game like Assassin's Creed Valhalla is going to be the kind of er example of that, where you have scope. You just have sheer size and breadth, right? Yeah. And it's going to borrow elements from games that are more innovative, but maybe not as technically impressive. Like Breath of the Wild, very innovative game in a lot of mm-hmm. ways and the way that it handled experimentation. Well, Assassin's Creed Valhalla is going to go out and it's going to take that and it's going to expand it into these massive, gorgeous world. If I were to say like, what defined this past generation in terms of actual gameplay, I would say scope. Like yeah, just worlds got scope. bigger, more detailed, more interesting. You could do more interesting things with storylines. I think that The Witcher Three, with this just fabulously detailed world and massive, uh, massive gameplay and that kind of thing, uh, with tons of side quests and giant, hugely detailed monsters, uh, really kind of defined the advancement of games in this in this generation. But I think maybe even a little more than that when it comes to a game like The Witcher 3, I think the writing and things like that have definitely matured as games have come more and more into the mainstream. It's been Mm -hmm. easier and easier to get really high-quality talent to be working on them. And I think that while we still have a long way to go, games are certainly a lot smarter than they were five years ago.
1: Yeah, I think so. One thing I did notice in the Sony PlayStation Five presentation is a lot of the games there—not necessarily Sony's games, but uh, particularly with the indies—they were stylized in a way that they would be really easy to port to the Switch. They weren't exactly like pushing the envelope in terms of power, but they were—they were all very quite unique looking and could be, I, I would imagine, ported to the Switch without you know w- worrying too hard about making everything look realistic and photo real and, you know, just like a photo or a movie.
0: Well, uh, as I already said, we live in a post-graphics world. Last year's best game was Goose Game and Disco Elysium. Neither games that really required a ton of graphical horsepower, right? Yeah,
1: that's the way I like it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I I think one of the other defining games of this generation is the Destiny and these so-called ongoing service games that are, continuously updated and continuously evolving and that kind of thing i don't think that the infrastructure or the hard drives were really big enough to support or even like really the knowledge of how they support these games was really advanced enough to be able to support a game like destiny so i'm Mm -hmm. that's why you're seeing these massive games coming out that are basically living games and you can go well i hate that (laughs) that's fine i you could say that's not positive but it's definitely a step forward for games in a lot of ways that's a good way of putting it it's a certain certainly an evolution as for what's coming next gen i i think you really should not discount what the technologies of like ssd and that kind of thing will mean for instant loading Mm -hmm. and even bigger worlds right where I mean, it could open up a lot of possibilities for developers that we didn't even really realize. I think somebody was referencing the, the old "I'm going through a very narrow space while the game is surreptitiously yes, loading like things Final up." Final Fantasy VII remake has tons of that. It's gonna see that's gonna seem so
1: dated, next generation. It really is. And you think about it, like when Microsoft first added hard drives to uh, consoles, everyone was like, "Why? Why would you want that?" And then
0: it changed everything. I think you're going to go back. Like, if you go back to previous Gen games, like, Katie wrote a big thing about The Last of Us and whether it holds up. And that game was like the pinnacle of the PS3 generation. Still holds up. Still also feels very dated in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Action adventure games have been refined and evolved in a lot of like really subtle ways in the past few years. And just things like the way characters animate, the the scope of the world and how it's like more non-linear and you have more opportunities to actually explore uh, the way that they do away with UI elements, the way that the AI yes. is a lot smarter. I, I think one of the really exciting possibilities of next gen is AI advancements being able to create these gameplay experiences that aren't really coming out from the actual developers, but are from came, coming from the game itself That's uh, creating kind of, almost like a holodeck in a game
1: yeah exactly and stuff like that will also close the gap on uh what's the word i'm looking for
0: uncanny valley like i spent a whole bunch of time uh at the beginning of this generation going well where where are the new game play concepts and sometimes this stuff just evolves in ways that you don't really expect and when you take a look back you go oh okay that was the direction that and if This, this, this generation was defined by open worlds and live, uh, service games and well, let's just hope that we have maybe stuff that's not as nakedly commercially driven (laughs) with the next generation of games. (laughs) It's gotten a little bit better ever since EA got like scruffed by Disney and shaken around like a puppy. I think that if you want really good games, though, look to, uh, the indie genres look to the fringes of the games industry because that's where the real innovation is happening and if you want big budget blockbusters well ubisoft's going to take care of you i would say that there are games for every single taste now Uh, the more games than you could possibly play forgetting a freaking star wars fighting with the (laughs) vr and the the joystick and the i get to play that i'm so happy nadia
1: (laughs) that's just dominating cat's thoughts right now she's thinking about that what are you gonna fly an x-wing or a bomber or a y-wing
0: well i think this gets back to people people like to lionize 15 years ago there, uh, things were crap 15 years ago <laughs> they were it
1: was horrible when uh the the gray and brown shooting era
0: was that what you're yeah. talking about yeah like, that wasn't fun the bottom fell out of Japanese games. People made fun of platformers. Sprite-based games were dead. Isometric RPGs were dead. The indie space was like... It it wasn't available it was in mobile. any large-scale kind of way. So you weren't seeing it the same way. So you were kind of limited to packaged goods. It sucked. It wasn't and fun. No, it wasn't. It's so much richer now in terms of the sheer scope. Don't pay attention just to the blockbuster games. There are so many amazing games coming out on every possible platform if you like a certain kind of game you can play it on the nintendo switch or you can play it on pc if you're like really obsessed with graphics or if you want true pure innovation play vr okay yeah i'm getting off my soapbox i just wanted to say that (laughs) no you're absolutely right when someone says to me like
1: oh the games aren't for me anymore i hit them because it's just there you can never play all the games that are available right now even if you just focused on the genres specific to you it's
0: just crazy how many how much choice there is these days Be more positive, people. Video games can be good. Maybe the fandoms are toxic sometimes, but... But the games uh, are good. Yeah, I mean, seriously, even if you're a bitter bitter and cynical person, you're going to find a game that it exists. Somebody is making it for you right now. Absolutely. (laughs) And there are a lot of RPGs still coming out, and it makes me happy. Heck, we're going to get Pokemon Snap this year, Nadia. So yeah, sp- there you go. So like, What more do you want? You, ha- you're, you have these new cool ideas coming out and you have nostalgia being catered to you. Like, You have everything. Axe the Blog Out is the U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate and review us. Follow me on Twitter at the underscore kipot. Chi- Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. We're going to continue the console RPG quest. Make sure to subscribe to Branching Narratives with Jeff Green, which is our interview podcast, our last week was with Samantha Coleman, and she was really great. She told great stories about getting high, (laughs) and also... (laughs) I have a few good stories about that, but... And how she was inspired by Loom and living in Denmark and rock band and all of these really interesting things. So uh, definitely worth a listen over on our other podcast that I edit. Okay, folks, we'll be back next Monday, as always. But until then, Renati and myself, thanks for listening. We covered a lot in this episode. Okay. Until then, happy adventuring.